Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Hay Festival 2018. This uh, event is delivered in association with the University of Cambridge. Dr. Shruti Kapila is a lecturer in modern Indian history and global political thought at the University of Cambridge. And today she explores the origins of modern anti-terror legislation in India's struggle for independence and reverberations today. If we could please welcome Shruti to the stage. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here and to exchange, as it were, a room full of students with real adults. So I'm going to, I work on um, primarily the histories of and languages of violence and politics uh, in the 20th century, primarily looking at India, but also looking in the global uh, context. So today I'm actually going to start with a story uh, which has planetary um, consequences, a story which is not very well known, but it was also the largest uh, challenge, greatest single challenge challenge to the British Empire uh, prior to uh, the First World War and into the First World War, and in a way that laid down the legal regimes of what we call terrorism today in the language of the law. So I'm actually going to start uh, by showing you a house in Hampstead. It still exists. It's a very, very nice part of town, and it was bought in 1906 by a very wealthy Indian, Indian man. And this house was, looks, as it were, quite obscure, quite ordinary, quite uh, suburban, if quite uh, well, well as it was uh, appointed. But the timing of the, buy, the, the property, the buying of this property, tells us everything. It was bought, bought in 1906. 1905 to 1908 in world history saw a global conjuncture, uh, a time in, in the world which moved away from Europe, from European imperialism, and a kind of activity and restiveness that uh, started with the defeat of the Russians against the J Japanese, but also the Young Turks movement, and also the anti, uh, anti um, uh, the kind of dress rehearsal for the Bolshevik Revolution. India, too, witnessed the first mass movement against the empire in 1905-06, but that was a spectacular monumental failure. And it's really that monumental failure that this man, who is on the right, uh, tried to address. His name is Shamji Krishnavarma. He's a very wealthy uh, Gujarati magnate. And he moves to London from Oxford, where he was uh, an assistant uh, teaching Sanskrit to one of the great scholars of Sanskrit of our times. He moved, bought this house, and at the same time instituted a newspaper called The Indian Sociologist, which was really like a propaganda machinery against, uh, against the empire. At the same time, he was highly uh, integrated in, uh, in London literary circles, particularly the public intellectual of his times, uh, Herbert Spencer. I don't know, today no one knows him, but he was the founder of sociology, a major anti-imperial thinker. But his view of anti-imperialism was primarily that that empire tends to barbarize home nations. So the more you expand, what you end up doing is you end up curtailing the life and liberty of people back in England. And he had mounted a very, very vociferous campaign against the Boer War. So in a way, the Indian sociologist was, in, in, in short, a homage uh, to, to, uh, to Herbert Spencer. But that was just really very, very small part of uh, what was going on. What was actually going on was that actually, uh, Shamji Krishnavarma was recruiting very highly intelligent Indian young men from India and placing them in the top educational institutions in this country, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, uh, University College London, and the like. And this house that we just saw became, as it were, a major secret society. It was out in the open, but it worked like a secret society. It was a house where all these young men came and lived. 
And the idea was to really produce a new language to confront the empire. Because what, had, what was clear by the beginning of the 20th century was the empire, the British Empire had become incredibly powerful. It was likely to be permanent because it had become very peaceful wherever it went. So in India, this had entailed education, it had pacified society, it had in, incorporated Indians into British institutions. And in a way, the spell of the empire was deep. And so, because of the failure of the mass movement too, it was clear that petitioning and mobilizing and demonstrating was not going to do very much. So a new form of thinking emerged through this Wealthy Patrons Act. And the first time that anyone takes note of it is when, in 1909, in Kensington uh, 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 Hall, in the middle of the day, a very major former British civil servant is assassinated by a young Indian man. And uh, this, is, this happens, you know, like here. <laughs> we are in a kind of public meeting, and Curzon Wiley, uh, who was aide de camp to, he was a very senior civil servant, was coming and giving a talk on his life in India. And uh, before he could even finish uh, speaking, uh, he was killed in front of um, several hundred people. And Dhingra, the, the young man that who, who was the assassin, who, who pulled the trigger, was an engineering student by day at University College London. And by night, he practiced, as it were, gun shooting and all of that in, in Tottenham Court, Court Road. And in a way, he, and of course, he lived in India House, the house that we show, I showed you at the front, the, the, uh, the house was given a name. It was called India House. There, as it were, words, words and acts became a new cult in which self-fashioning against the empire became, uh, uh, became, became the motive. The idea was that you could not fight the empire through institutional mechanisms. You, what you needed was a new theory of the self a new kind of person who would even stake their own death to, as it were, counter and break the spell. So this was, in a way, a, a kind of promissory note of the youth. So this was very, very young. The, the, the mobilization is very young. And here, this is Dhingra um, on, in, you know, it's not, uh, on the left in the Old Bailey. He's uh, collected very quickly. And then he is, of course, hanged in Pentonville prison. And, uh, and his, his, his testimony is, is a testimony uh, 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 on actually the idea of the individual against something which is abstract. The empire is abstract, it is too large, it is not even a, a political institution. So how do you, as it were, kind of confront something which is so big, which, is, which, uh, which might be everywhere, but precisely because it's everywhere, you can't locate it, you can't fight it, you can't confront it. And uh, anyway, he's hanged, and, and the spirit behind the, the, ideo uh, the ideological spirit behind it is the man on the right, um, I'm sorry, this is a lot of Indian names, but the man on the right is a very important Indian man called Savarkar. He is the ideologue of Hindu nationalism, the current party in power in India uh, of Modi. And on the left is, of course, Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi, too, in 1909, right after Dhingra assassinated Wiley, visits India House. And there is this very, very famous story. Gandhi was in London on, on, on the invitation of the vegetarian uh, society. He was trying to get people to stop eating meat uh, and, and, and the like. He hadn't quite gone to India, and he was actually in South Africa at, uh, at this point. And he hadn't really come to terms with what he was going to do in India, if anything at all. But it's an encounter in the India house that changes his mind. And it's, the story goes, there's a debate after dinner and between Savarkar, and Savarkar is also uh, the man uh, ideologically responsible for the assassination of Gandhi in 1948. It is one of his followers who pulled the trigger on, uh, on Gandhi. And there's this very, very famous story that there is a um, post-dinner meeting, and the idea is that uh, whoever, whichever side, Savarkar and Gandhi sit on two opposing sides of the dinner table, and whoever wins the point, the men will join that side. At the end of the long debate that ran into till 5 a.m., Gandhi was all alone. Everyone was with Savarkar. Everyone thought the cult of violence, the cult of assassinations, the cult of bombing uh, was the future of the independence movement for India. 
This occasions Gandhi to almost have a schizophrenic breakdown, and he writes his monumental book on a ship journey in six days, uh, which becomes his political manifesto. I will come to Gandhi a little later, but let's, let's stick with, with, with what happens. But in a way, Gandhi's inspiration to, to India, his return to India, is down to the encounter in the India House and the figures that he, the, that he meets. So, and their main leader was a man named Hardayal. Hardayal was a very major intellectual, a very great friend of George Orwell's, but he had done something rather spectacular. He had a, 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 an imperial scholarship at St. John's College. He was a star pupil, and on the eve of his graduation, he gave up very publicly his degree. So he did not graduate. And this became, as it were, an imperial scandal. They couldn't figure it out. This was, their, this was, this was, this was the guy who was going to be the hope between, a broker between Britain and India. And Hardeyal, in a way, joins the India House, and it becomes the ideologue, uh, and he can write in several languages, and they kind of produce this kind of cyclostyle, you know, um, kind of almost like circular messages on WhatsApp that you get today, but the, you, you know, uh, you, they, they produce a very coherent strategy of, of propaganda which circulates across the world. And what, in a way, uh, Hardeyal argues is that what you need is a second life, a parallel secret life to the life of the empire. And in a way, they, they model themselves uh, on the basis of a secret society. So they live in the open, uh, you know, conducting normal affairs by day, but they were also invisible because they, they operated like a secret society, and at home, they did what they did. And then they called themselves a group which was a social dynamite and which believed, in a way, the idea was to confront history, to have a tryst with history and to confront it. And in a way, what Hardeyal also institutes is the cult of death and sacrifice as the basis of politics. So in a way, the first critique of liberal imperialism, which also Gandhi will use, but a range of anti-imperial thinkers will use, will be that liberal imperialism and liberalism, as we understand it, is based on privileging life. It, 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 it makes life the center of politics, its protection is what it's about, and its enhancement is what liberalism is interested in. But these guys reverse that whole ideological matrix because in terms of, they, they make death as, as the basis and the end point of politics. And therefore, to give up yourself in a way to sacrifice, the language of sacrifice becomes incredibly important. But this is not, in a way, nationalism in any simple way. I mean, that one has to say. It is, it is, it is a creed of the individual self. It is a new kind of political self that is birthed in this moment. And the idea was that Ninth, the 19th century, which had seen the expansion of Britain onto the planetary scale, had actually been a century of destruction and, and, and was put, had put people into, as it were, the waiting room of history, always to await their freedom, never to get it. But in a way, um, they decided, a very, these are self-conscious words, that the 20th century would be the century of confrontation and fulfillment. This would not be a century simply of changing political equations, but actually we, the, the past will have to be annihilated. And those of you who know your Nietzsche would know that this is coming from also ideas of Nietzsche. This is a very you know, global theme uh, uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is captivating a large number of people. However, with Dhingra's assassination, the, 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 the group is under considerable pressure, and they move out. So they, what they do is this is really the, the moment when they go global. So Hardeyal goes off to Algeria. Some of them go to America, Mexico, China, Japan. You name it, they are there. They don't return to India, but they, they go all over the world. And in a way, they're sitting in what can be called, today we know through Al-Qaeda, these secret cells. They are basically operating in cells, you know, living in, living in normal lives in, in someone's house, in the suburbs of Berkeley, for instance, or living with a very famous intellectual in Paris. And so they're working out what's going on, you know, what's going to happen, you know, what have we, what have we all done all this for? Why have we given up our jobs, marriages, and, 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 and the like? And here is, let me show you another 
but before we come to that. And all of this comes into real centralized connections and concerted effort across the globe through a movement called the Gadar. Now, we should all know about it. The Gadar means rebellion or mutiny. It is instituted exactly 50 years after the Indian mutiny of 1857 to, as it were, avenge the loss of the British, uh, what happened in, in the Indian mutiny. Now, I, we should recall that the, in the 19th century, the Indian mutiny is the single largest scale of violence that the British uh, encountered outside of the Crimean War. It was a war. It was not so much a rebellion. It was, it, it was a large-scale war. And the Gadar, in a way, fashioned itself deliberately in its name to not just repeat a, a historical failure, but to repeat the mutiny on a planetary scale. It would no longer be confined to India, but it will, be, it will go to the fringes of the, uh, of the geography of the British Empire. So as I said, from Southeast Asia to Japan to China to, to Mexico, these people to Panama, no place is small, no place is big enough for, 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 for this movement. And what this does is you have an Urdu pamphlet, you have a Punjabi pamphlet, and it is the main figure, the, the kind of military figure of this campaign is a man sitting in the middle of this fantastic mural in Mexico City in the heart of uh, the governmental architecture. This is, of course, Diego uh, Rivera Memorial, Mr. Frida Kahlo. And this is an Indian man I, you know, who, who, uh, who, in a way, militarized uh, these young boys uh, primarily on the west coast of uh, America, where, which is where uh, they, they received training. Uh, they, uh, uh, not only did Khankoje meet Lenin, you can see uh, Lenin on, on, on the right of this uh, mural, but also, in a way, uh, Khankoje also joined up with Mexican revolutionaries who were also fighting their own uh, wars uh, in, in the 1910s and uh, in, the, in the 1910s and 20s. But it's really the First World War, and this is the kind of map, as you can see, that the kind of handwritten ma map, this is the kind of imagery that circulates, which of course has a kind of a personified idea of a woman, which is Mother India, and with a, with a lion at the back, and a whole lot of, as it were, and its poetry is the mechanism. The style of, as it were, propaganda is not prose, it is poetry. And these, po these poems, if you go to India today, are still sung. Uh, people probably don't know what their meanings are, but but the, all of this is propelled into the, uh, into the theaters of the First, uh, First World War. And uh, Khan Koje, the man we just saw on the Mexican mural, Hardeyal, and several of them start going to all the major military bases of the British Empire. And as you know, that the British Indian Army is the single largest standing army in the world at this point. And they want to, as it were, get Indians to desert desert the army and fight a third front against the British Empire, and, and it happens. It happens. It, it happens in Persia. The, sorry, this, the first site is Aleppo. This is they've seized Aleppo, and the second one is a, a training camp in, in Persia. Now, you might wonder where the money came from. Uh, at this point in 1915, uh, uh, of course, it's the Kaiser, uh, who, uh, you know, the German, uh, the German king, who in a way says, okay, take the money. And a big, big debate opens up whether Indians were actually just going to sell themselves to another empire. They've, they've also been quite hesitant uh, to join the Bolshevik cause because they don't think that they want to be part of, as it were, a, a new em a imperial uh, formation. So there's a lot of ideological incoherence, but there is a deep commitment to a politics of death, sacrifice, and individual action. And of course, they bring hell to the British Empire in, 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 in terms of the army staff. And the conservative estimates uh, in the First World War are 40,000 uh, Indian soldiers uh, deserted. And uh, quite apart from the Indian students and private students and, and, and so on. And uh, in a way, this is a very big moment for, for the British Empire and for the British to figure out what's going on. 
up until now, you had either peasant, uh, uh, peasant leaders uh, who could be, you know, rabble rousers and could get, uh, you know, get uh, peasants to kind of burn records, go up to the police station. Well, they could handle that. Uh, and then you had otherwise, you know, English-educated Indians who were petitioning the Raj for more, for, for more representation. This is something different. These guys can speak English, they can speak Hindi, they can speak everything. But they're also, they cannot be caught because where are they? Their location, their lack of location becomes in a way a big problem. How do you understand this violence? What is this violence? And so this is again another pamphlet. This is Khan Koje. And these are some of the people arrested uh, and so the recruitment is twofold uh, to the cause. One is, of course, the Indian soldiers, and the second is the Indian second wave of slavery, as it's called in world history, indentured labor in Southeast Asia, in Fiji, but also increasingly in the west coast of America and, uh, and, and Canada, and mostly these are Sikhs uh, who have come from the Punjab, who are, as it were, making California to be what it is, uh, a major, a major uh, agrarian uh, uh, thing. So these guys get caught, and, the, and how does it happen? What is the, uh, let's take a brief moment at what the empire does with it. The main figure who, in a way, writes the story up is uh, called Valentine Cairo. Again, a name who has fallen out of, um, as it were, vision. But Cairo was the editor of the London Times. He was a diplomat without portfolio. And he was, in a way, the first man in sort of English letters to speak of the dangers of pan-Islamism. So he had you know, traveled a great deal in the Middle East. He had traveled a lot to India. And he basically wrote bestsellers on it, uh, on, on it, but also informing imperial policy. And he wrote a bestseller called India Unrest which in a way tried to connect the story of what happened in 1905 or 6 in India when the failed anti-colonial movement with, as it were, figuring out who the hell is Savarkar, who is Hardeyal, who are these people? They seem to be fa fairly obscure. We've never heard of them. They're all of 25. And he writes an amazingly, it's a kind of very raunchy account uh, of this politics. And, and in a way, it sort of sweeps the bookshelves. And this is occasions, uh, as it were, the first legal definition of terror. And so up until now, the British Empire and in India had managed political disquiet through ideas of sedition. And as we know, uh, sedition means disloyalty to the king and later disloyalty to the realm. But what are these people being disloyal to? It is not clear. And in a way, um, the person who starts thinking about it for, for the first time in our modern times, and in fact, it is a 20th century formation, is a man named Sidney Rowlett. He's a, he's a senior judge uh, on the benches here, and he's sent to India. And uh, he writes uh, on the activities of this movement, this global transnational anti-imperial movement, saying, well, this is the greatest challenge that the British have faced. Because, of course, the First World War was bad, but it was a conventional warfare. You knew who the enemy was, you had rules of engagement, you, you had rules of killing, and when peace happened, you could have a treaty, right? But this is a new formation of violence, because this is absolutely anti-institutional, it has no connections to an army, it, has, it is based on self-discipline, and Will sedition really even control these people? I mean, you know, what, where, you know what, does, what right does Britain have to bring someone from California? So extradition, you know, how can, in a way, someone from Algeria who has done something in Mesopotamia be, be, be called into to the legal framework? So this is the big question for Rowlett. And Rowlett says, and he, this is the first time the word terrorism as political violence enters the legal vocabulary of the world. And of course, he says, what this is, is not anarchism. It is, it is not individual action. It is a new form of political violence. And, 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 and the law, and I think he was right to point on, on one thing, the law has to catch up 
with this violence. So this, uh, the violence has produced something new in the world, but the law has not been able to understand it, let alone be able to, uh, to, 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 to control it. He understood that this violence was actually about the disruption of order. It wasn't about saying, well, you have your empire, we're going to fight you, give us our nation. It is simply very, very negative in its power. And, and the disruptive power of this violence is what he tries to, uh, to, to, to argue. Secondly, what he understood uh, was that, in a way, what was happening was that these people could appear anywhere and disappear equally very quickly. They had a cellular structure. They could just show up at, 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 at a battlefield or at, an at a site of assassination, and they would just then hide. They did not require an institutional, as it were, framework. And this ability to appear violently and disappear quietly was, was, major, was a major concern of, of, for, for Rowlett. And in a way, he said, this is a different kind of violence because this violence is not gathering up. It is just dispersing. And, and the law cannot do anything to, to contain it. I mean, because it's, so, it's like quicksilver. It, it flows and it, it doesn't gather. And he realizes that the state, on the other hand, is interested in collecting violence or institutionalizing it in the army or in the police. And this, in a way, is a challenge. So you have, as it were, uh, this problem of dispersal and collection on two sides of this thing. So it's a remarkable report. Of course, it was a very, very brutal report. And in a way, uh, he, you know, uh, uh, he understood that what, uh, what, in a way, terror was doing was based on this idea of what we today know, mobility and agility, technical agility. You know that, if you, you know, whether it's ISIS, whether it's Al-Qaeda, uh, it is highly mobile, and it is dependent on just one thing, technical agility. It's very agile. And, and therefore, it's unable to, to contain itself, so it's unsettling. Much like, um, I'll come to Al-Qaeda in a, in, 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 a, in, a, in a minute, but what Rowlett did uh, was really to say sedition was inadequate. This is also the founding of the surveillance state in Britain. MI5 is instituted. Its first uh, dry run is to penetrate the, the cellular, cellular structures, planetary cellular structures of the Gadar, and they destroy it. They have, as it were, through spies, uh, you know, who go all across the world. So a surveillance state is birthed in Britain uh, to manage this. And also, uh, what he, uh, so you have the first, as it were, secret global operation of, 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 of surveillance, quite apart from, uh, from the word. Secondly, of course, he deploys uh, a new act, which became called the, uh, the Rowlett Act, it, is a, it was called the Black Bill by Gandhi, and it was the first time in even the British imperial state uh, you, were, you could be arrested without warrant and without appeal. So no recourse to appeal, and you know, we have versions of that till date. Yeah? We have versions of that in all states, whether it's India, uh, Britain, or, or so on. But the interesting thing is it also institutionalized the idea of secrecy for the state. Up until now, the state was not interested in, in secret politics, in surveillance, or even, you know, uh, share. So not sharing information became a very big theme. But of course, this was considered to be uh, a black act. And the people we saw a few slides away, people like these, who were arrested in the tens of thousands uh, right after the end of the First World War, after Britain is uh, victorious, uh, the idea is that they would be now not tried, but would just be sent to prison under the new Black Acts or the Rowlett Act. And it is this, precisely this law, that the people of Punjab, which, is, which had where, where, where a large number of these recruits came from, came to protest in, 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 in what came to be then called the Amritsar Massacre. Uh, so all the relatives, because uh, uh, you know, posters were sent across, names were given, it was a public affair for the, uh, for the empire to name people, name families, name collaborators. And the idea was then those arrests were going to be, they were either made or going to be made. And as we know, uh, that this peaceful movement itself is, is, is clamped down uh, with, with one of the worst imperial atrocities uh, uh, of, our, of, of our times. But 
And in a way, also, this would be the breakpoint moment for Gandhi uh, to, to, to institute his politics. But let me say a few more words, if I can, on what terror and the idea of terrorism might mean, quite apart from uh, the, 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 the issue of the empire and the state aiming to, to, uh, to, 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 to control it. I mean, it is based on a very unsettled and militant idea of the subject. It is a restless subject. It is not a subject which is easily given to being settled, whether in family commitments, education, jobs, uh, or, 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 or the like. So it is highly anti-statist, one, one, can, one can use that word. And therefore, it also defies becoming part of normal vocabularies of, of, uh, of nationalism. The, the cult, the weapon of choice at that point was not simply assassinations, but it was the bomb. Uh, the bomb was seen to be uh, this kind of almost, the word was used, a democratic weapon. It was seen to be something that could be assembled by anyone at, at, in their homes. And it was also considered a form of lightning, which, which converted a dark matter into, into, brought it into visibility. So by assassinating uh, a, a, a Curzon Wiley, you show, as it were, there's a kind of way of saying, well, you were the oppressor, you know, and now I'm now. So in a way, the bomb and the violence becomes a very efficient form of communication. And, and this is something we must realize about terror, is not simply its, its acts of violence, but its potency as a language. It is, it is, it is seeking communication with with an established order. So it, it is not simply disrupting that order, but it is also establishing a dialogue. And lots of people have written about it, but in a way, the argument goes that you have forms of violence in contemporary life, contemporary political life. The most, uh, most oppre not oppressive, but I suppose the most pervasive form of violence is what we like to call its objective side. It is, it is invisible. So the, the st violence of the state, say the armies, are deployed at the borders. They're not here, you know, but, you know, there are, there, you know, so violence in a way gets pushed out of society, but it, it, is, it is highly objective. People say that about capital and the, and the market as a form of objective violence. But by contrast, the guerrilla, the partisan, the terrorist operates with a highly subjective, individualized and spectacular language of violence. So the idea is to really stir violence, not just through an act, but to create an image, to create a spectacle. And, and it's really this confrontation between objective violence and subjective violence that has become the story of our times. Whether, whether it is, I mean, of course, we'll talk about Al-Qaeda in a second, but even if you think about the lone wolf attacks in, in, in America, I mean, it is always the school. It is always against that objective order that a subjective act of violence is committed, right? Uh, so it, it, this form of uh, violence as, 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 as dialogue, I think, has made it also very enduring, quite apart from the fact that it is not interested in causes. So we will all say, well, that school kid who killed so and so many people had terrible relations with his dad, mom, whatever. But actually, the, 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 the bottom line comes down to is that it produces spectacular effects. You know? And so this, this idea of terror, which is you know, detached, as it were, from, from its causes, makes it actually very, very profoundly uh, effective. Gandhi, of course, understood all of this. And uh, Gandhi, in a way, produced a new vocabulary, uh, which was not simply nonviolence for the sake of it. He understood that a very visible language of politics has to be created, which is also, like the terrorists, has to be based on the subjective element. It cannot replicate a party or the state or seek representation. It will have to remake the individual self, but that individual self will also have politics which are very visible. So unlike the terrorists, he of course took everything into the open. He took everything into the open, unlike the state, too, everything was brought out in, in, in public in the open. But Gandhi also is 20th century's most anti-status political thinker. He does not believe the state can, in a way, control violence. 
Gandhi very profoundly said, much like the terrorists have deployed, that violence is an individual capacity. It is not something out there. It is we who have it. And, and therefore, what we do with it is our only moral question. The only moral question we have to ask is not whether the British have a right to be in India, but what we as Indians who have been suppressed, what are we going to do with violence because it is in us. And of course, Gandhi produces a very, very powerful vocabulary of truth and visible truth and so on. And in a way, he, he defeats both, as it were, the, 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 the insurrectionists on the one side, the, uh, the Hardeals and the Savarkars on the one side, and indeed, absolutely frustrates the British Empire into submission. But I want to say something before I kind of open it up, a little bit about what, what, what this might have to do with political languages in the 20th century. What is, what, what is this violence? Why is it political? And what, what does political power mean beyond simply, as it were, some party in control, we vote, uh, Brexit, you know. But really, what is the work of the modern state? And what, is, what does the modern state do? One of the most profound transformations in human life have been in the story of sovereign power or in statecraft itself. And in a way, the fact that we think about nationalism as something deep to all of us, whether it's English, Welsh, Indian, or what have you, uh, these are highly recent political languages of attachment, which is not to say people were not attached to language, land, and other things earlier, but our ideas of loyalty, which I started with on sedition, were, were, were almost always to a king and, and to a rather diffused idea of the realm. But from the late 18th century onwards, land or the element, there are three at least elements of sovereignty, which become, as it were, really important to how states fashion themselves. So control over territory becomes not simply a kingdom, but becomes an aspect of sovereign power which has to be controlled, legitimized through violence, and we see it all the time. That, that is why wars take place, that is why civil wars take place. With the British imperial expansion, water became like land. It became like a territorial entity which needed to be controlled. And this is why piracy was a very big uh, problem for the British in the 18th century. But it's really air that I'm interested in uh, as, as, as an element of sovereign power, which is really only a 20th century phenomenon. And it is something which speaks directly to terror. Because much like, unlike land or water, air is everywhere. It is uncontainable, it is a condition of life, but it, 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 it defies control or territoriality. It's a very ethereal uh, element, uh, if one might say. So like terror, air defi defies uh, control. But this is precisely why terror, through the ideas of, and, and with the idea of the effect, uh, which I talked about, creating of image, uh, air and plane hijacking has become, as it were, the key modus operandi of, 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 of terror. Even though these events tend to be terribly rare, uh, they, 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 uh, they, they produce a kind of spectacle, an image, and a vocabulary of fear, which makes the capture of bodies and territory redundant. So this is precisely why the global war on terror is a failure because, or had been, has become a failure, or we can have a discussion about it, uh, precisely because the, the, the state uh, or the, the, the people who wanted to control it were seeking to capture bodies and territories. Whereas the terrorist is always escaping, or this language of violence, much like air, is, is defying control, is defying its capture. And therefore, in a way, what you see in the 20th century, and we are seeing this with ISIS too, that traditional warfare has become redundant. Uh, you, you will, you know, this, this, you will, this is an era of modern terror as violence, or at best you will get civil wars. The most conventional form of violence today is actually civil war rather than, and, and with all of this. So in a way, there's a new innovation in the political language of, which, which is birthed about 100 years uh, ago. And the problem is law has to catch up. Always law has to catch up. It cannot make sense of what this is. 
and and uh, because it is it is spectacular, it is containable, uh, uncontainable, and and it is uncontrollable. And the thing is, uh, while the law, our traditional uh, legal regimes, are interested in nation states and containment and control, borders, closures, enclosures, that's why immigration and the like, these guys are on the edge of it, defying it, circumventing it. So legal regimes have, in a way, failed. But like empire, um, in a way, also, because empire was also a challenge to the nation state, uh, in a way, um, this in a way, all of these things are a, a, a critique or tell us about the inadequacy of nationalism and the nation state. And you can think about non-violent things like finance capital, which is also a mobile, uh, which is offshore, and un you cannot tax it. So there's a huge geography of deterritorialization, which is amongst us. So how much ever we might want to get angry about immigration and want to, say, put people off our borders or, or all of that, there is a deterritorial logic to politics, which actually started in, 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 the, in the 20th century. And in a way, what you have then is when you have the state wanting to regulate it, control it, um, you know, manage it, it ultimately, I would argue, Herbert Spencer-like, that not that I agree with him on very much else, that it leads to the brutalization of the state and the people itself. So, the, 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 I mean, I can give you an example of the Sikh terror movement in India, but we can uh, skip that. We don't have time, but it is seen to be a precursor uh, to, uh, to uh, the languages of terror, that uh, the signature symbols of, of terror that bin Laden uh, instituted. Uh, and in a way, whether it is Abu Ghraib or whether it is the anti-Sikh riots, the worst pogrom in 20th century India, uh, in Delhi, and there's an image there, uh, this in a way makes the state brutal. So the work of violence is not simply in a way uh, uh, spectacle or the work is not simply to, to disrupt, but ultimately it has led the, the greatest effect modern vocabularies of terror have had is in the brutalization of the state itself. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. This, it's not on. Okay. I'll just speak loudly. So the thing about the um, Indian national movement yes. is that... Um, me. Thank you so much. I can have a voice now. Yeah. Uh, the, so the liberation movements, mm -hmm. uh, they used violence, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to me that the one that was successful was nonviolent. Mm -hmm. But at least we in the West, we imperialists, we could enter into a dialogue with it, and they had clear desires that were reasonable, could be negotiated with, and in a certain sense incorporated into our history. Uh, and then you come to the terrorists of today, ISIS especially, it's impossible to enter into a dialogue with them, and their desires are, there's, there's no place where we can start having common ground. And so you say it's part of the same thing, but I see something very, very different between the national liberation movements and what we have today. And I'm sure you've thought about that. Yes. I want you to educate uh, Thank you. Um, so the first thing first, uh, that uh, I wanted to, in a way, expose the violent origins of anti-imperial nationalism in India. So while I'm a great fan of Gandhi, uh, <coughs> we always think of Gandhi as the icon of Indian freedom, right? And, and that nationalism or anti whatever else you want to call it, was basically a nonviolent movement. Now, you cannot understand Gandhi without his encounter with these people. Uh, you know, uh, Gandhi is, Gandhi's politics is fashioned precisely on that basis that you say, where is the dialogue? What is the common ground? What are we even fighting for? Right? He asks these very, very basic questions. And in his monumental manifesto, which people think is actually uh, tracked against modernity, Hind Swaraj or Indian Home 
rule, which it is not, Gandhi actually says, you know, uh, it's not even the British because, you know, he says openly that the, we keep the British, right? He's not saying that this is about just imposition. Um, so part of my telling of the story was to say that, A, this is a very precise dating of the modern vocabularies of terror. And in a way, when Rowlett and co are talking about it, they also introduce, and I didn't have the time to get into it, but they also introduce for the first time the language of humanitarianism. So since you cannot fight, as it were, uh, terror, or it's not subject-citizenship relationship, subject-citizen relationship, they come up with something called humanitarianism. And they deploy the League of Nations at that point to make Rowlett's uh, act as modular for international legal regimes, right? And that is still in place, right? All this, so I needed to just say that, well, it's an obscure story, but this is where it started. And we would not think that, because we would think India's story is a story of sacrifice. And Gandhi, of course, also uses sacrifice but as, as, a, as a political precept. Now, the point about uh, AQ and, uh, and ISIS is, is uh, something which, um, if you can bear it out, is actually it has no, one would argue that it, it is not a relationship of cause and effect. It is not like, oh, you did this to us in the Middle East or wherever, Palestine, whatever, some grievance. You can list a series of grievance. And we are responding to that. Uh, some very prominent uh, figures, Olivia Roy uh, on, on Global Islam, and others argue, or Faisal Devji argue, that actually this is all about producing effects. It is itself an aspect of globalization, much like f finance capital, much like, say, NGOs, or, you know, it sounds really weird, but, you know, it is an aspect of globalization. It is not its other. It is part of the same thing, which is why it moves, it's agile, it is, it, 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 it uh, so in a way, uh, they argue that, you, you know, that this, this it, it cannot be about, but one thing I find interesting about ISIS, and I'm not uh, a specialist on, on global Islam, uh, though, you know, one can hardly avoid it, uh, is, um, that Al-Qaeda was resolutely deterritorial. And it has, then we know, split into a, a, a gazillion cells, whether it is X, Y, or Z names in Africa, five or six names in South Asia. They have new other names, new bodies that have come up. ISIS, on the other hand, uh, fell for the temptations of territory. So it is, it is, it is, that is why ISIS, because it now wants, as it were, territorial control, it wants something called the caliphate. Uh, it wants, you know, all the kind of things that we understand as kind of nationalist type of languages or statist type languages. That is precisely why it, it has, if not been contained, it has been dragged into a civil war in, in Syria. I would uh, surmise, so I would just hesitate and say that actually AQ and its, its spin-offs uh, still remain uh, more potent than, 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 than ISIS. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much. Absolutely fascinating uh, conversation. The, the, uh, just as you touched there on the point about ISIS falling for that uh, mm. sense of wanting mm. to have territory, which then mm. makes it easier to mm. attack because mm. you can say, ah, mm. ISIS represents this mm. caliphate, we'll mm. go after them. Mm. Uh, it seems we've got a movement um, endlessly of looking for nation states, mm -hmm. looking for nationalism, mm. defense, mm. and yet you point wonderfully in that uh, one slide where you show you know, air, water, etc. Yes. that which you can't control. Mm -hmm. And then you can add finance and all of those other yes. areas. So we're going to go through this constant illusion of pulling the drawbridge up, drawing boundaries around things to try and control them. Where does that head? I mean, it's into bigger groupings, you know, it's a bigger China, it's a, right. a, uh, America pulling up the uh, drawbridge. Very everything. good question. And uh, while I don't like to predict anything, uh, but I, I take my instruction from Gandhi, actually, because Gandhi understood both uh, the revolutionary insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, the Gadaris, the Gadarites, and he understood the imperial state. He was a lawyer. He'd already had uh, run-ins and successful campaigning in, in, in South Africa with, and against Smuts. And uh, 
So Gandhi understood the liberal vocabulary of statecraft and control of violence and why liberal regimes are really interested in life, as I said, life and property and, and the like. But he also understood that what these guys were doing had really done something. In, he was not alone. A large number of anti-imperial figures in this period were really caught up with this question of death. And you see that coming up again and again, uh, that actually the, the finite nature of human life, uh, um, in a way, forces these individuals uh, to actually think about death as sacrifice. So Gandhi would not want to kill or assassinate, but what Gandhi did was to prepare the individual in what can be called death regimes, you know, fasting, these limit experiences on a daily basis so that you learn the vocabulary of sacrifice, but you also control the capacity of your own violence, right? Now, this was an innovation. This was a huge political innovation or, and political language, which in a way did bring Indian, India and Indians freedom. Now, what I'm trying to say by speaking at length on this is that there will need to be a new political language which will have to kind of come to terms with what it might mean to be human today. Because that's the question Gandhi asked. What is to, to be human today? And, and what is, so I don't think it can be about simply, you know, cut, you know, of course, you know, states and geopolitics will take its course and people will do what they will need to do. But I'm sure there will be some, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the only way out, I don't think, is just following either of these, these traps. But we have seen, A, the state has become very disempowered uh, against whether it is finance capital or whether it is uh, against, uh, against such movements. And all wars have led to the brutalization of our individual liberties. Uh, surveillance, whether it's your Facebook account or whether it's... Uh, uh, so in a way, all that, the brutalization, we are already experiencing our brutalization, whether we realize it or not. But this answer is not going to come from either of these registers. That's what I would say. Thank you. Maybe you could just comment on the value of uh, the development of social media in the last uh, few years. It's really spread the inability to have any controls of terror and the, and the various feelings within a country. Yes, uh, thank you. I think communication is key, and communication was also key to these chaps. So how did they circulate their stuff? Of course, there was surveillance on books and the like, and they would put their pamphlets in, 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 in books which looked something else. And, you know, and uh, so the, in a way, communication is, and the mobilization of information, information is mobilized, and, and that is what we are seeing uh, today. It's not simply spectacular acts, but also dissemination of information, whether it was in the Manchester case uh, that happened, uh, or the fact that actually not simply social media, but in the, say, the siege of Mumbai uh, in, in 2008, the entire thing was televised. So the army and the, and the, the guys couldn't get in. So by the time, hundreds of people had lost their lives. So uh, this question of visibility, what it does is that it pushes, you know, pushes for more and more spectacular acts. This will, this, you know, so social, we're of course confronted with it and we can't contain it. Uh, no one can contain it. And we've seen that even uh, Zuckerberg has put his hands up uh, on it. Hi there. Uh, just going back to the uh, slide on the elements of sovereign power. Mm -hmm. So I think the next slide. Um, would you, so this is kind of following on from the last question, really. But would you say that cyberspace is an element of sovereign power? Does, yes. It's of course, a, a man-made domain. But how does that interact differently with tools of power? Uh, fantastic uh, uh, question, uh, but I, w I would. Uh, there's some great work being done at Cambridge uh, on, on on it, and uh, I would just sort of say that uh, in a way, uh, I don't think of cyberspace as uncontainable like air, 
but it will acquire territorial dimension, which it already is through regulations and controls, whether these are individual controls, uh, you know, on Facebook, whatever, or whether they are going to be controls by the state or perhaps the big companies themselves, or perhaps one could argue there's an argument going on in the press, in the international press, that perhaps China has got it right, you know, because it's regulating it, you know, uh, before rather than freedom. So in a way, of course, cyberspace is a fourth new dimension uh, of, uh, uh, of sovereign power, but I think it is more like land and will become like what land, like water became like land, cyberspace will become a territorial aspect of sovereign power. And it already is, in a way. We are in the midst of its territorialization at the moment. Yes, there's a lady here. Um, I was interested in India House. Yes. And what happened um, after Wiley was killed, yes. given that um, his assassin was based there. Yes. Um, was, was, was that tracked back to India House? What yes, it then was. You talked about people going yes. quite soon across yes. the world and setting yes. up cells elsewhere. Yes. So, um, yes, India House, and it has a blue plaque today in Hampstead, uh, recognized as uh, India House, uh, and quite apart from the number of Indian curry houses called that. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, uh, Shamji Krishnavarma moved to Switzerland, uh, where he died. And, uh, in fact, uh, Modi, India's prime minister, uh, when he uh, became chief minister of Gujarat about eight, ten years ago. He's a real counter-hero in a kind of... He's not part of the nationalist pantheon in India. Modi actually flew to bring his final remains, and there's now a very, very big memorial to him in, in Gujarat, where he was, he was born, uh, because he's not really, as it were, seen as a founding figure of Indian independence. Um, a lot of them end up in America, uh, in California, where the Gadar is headquartered. Uh, some in Mexico, uh, a large number in Japan. Uh, so there's a very famous uh, assassination attempt at the Viceroy of India around the same time. It's a failed assassination, and that cell moves to Japan. Uh, so these people actually just, for a few more years till the First World War, till about the 1920s, will be active. But the interesting story is, and I'm, I'm not one for conspiracies, but the interesting story is that on the, uh, uh, Hardayal, in a way, uh, gets a British passport, uh, despite being on the run for, for 15, 20 years, and was you know, in America and in Switzerland, and then moves in the late 20s to London, is a very major figure in London literary circles, and writes bestseller books on Buddhism and self-help and whatnot. But on the eve of the Second World War, he, he, he goes to America, and we don't know, but he's killed in mysterious circumstances. The others, in a way, who show up in Moscow, some of them show up after the Russian Revolution to Moscow. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, post-Lenin. Uh, several of them are shot by Stalin, and those records were only made available because Nehru, India's first prime minister, his, one of his closest friends, was, had been missing and he was one of them. And so that, so in a way, there's dispersal into, but what, uh, what is interesting is uh, that these figures refuse to join up with Weimar politics. So they don't go down the fascist route, uh, which, uh, which was open to them. Hello. Yes. Uh, if, and I think you've made a good case for it, that there are lessons in uh, our modern difficulties with, with mm -hmm. the trajectories of how these movements mm -hmm. took place around India and, and then expanding out. Mm -hmm. um, and something of the state of history and education. How do you see this material, if the new movements that will counteract this, as you say, it's not going to come from the two players as we mm -hmm. see it, mm -hmm. and it's going to come out of a third new thought, mm. um, and that being a result of some well, I think, education. Um, How do you see this material being approached within the curriculum and wow. as, as, it, as it is now and as you would like it to be? Well, I think, uh, I think the story that, uh, of empire and the story of anti-empire needs to be rewritten. So the empire story can no longer just be uh, a question of, you know, uh, 
we know the debate is raging, whether, you know, well, we didn't do that badly. The empire brought railways or brought English education or, you know, um, cricket even. Uh, but, you know, uh, it cannot no longer be simply about a blame game uh, uh, in some ways, but there has to be some reckoning of imperialism as, as a kind of fairly violent form of politics uh, in Britain, I would argue. And, uh, but on the other hand, I would say that uh, the story cannot simply be about nationalist moral fable against empire. There are many diverse ideological uh, movements. And uh, so I think a kind of more, uh, a more careful reading, especially of the capacity of violence for politics, I think that's the instruction for, for future generations, that violence is not simply in the army or in the terrorists. Like with Gandhi, it is in all of us. And I think that's the question to, to, be, to be talking about. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Uh